the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the fountain of youth discovered and drained by spiteful gremlins still angry after having that car named after them. Empires and elves wearing puffy vests. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Ring of Fire series authors Karen Offord and Rick Boatwright, authors of 1636 The Chronicles of Dr. Gribbleflots. This is a fun entry in the Ring of Fire series created by Eric Flint. Karen, who is a guy, by the way, and Rick are the creators of this wonderful character within the 1632 universe, and now all the Gribbleflots stories are collected in their new book, and we'll talk to them about that. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. All coming up, here's the news. The September hardcovers are here. Out now at booksellers is The Span of Empire by Eric Flint and David Carrico. This is a continuation of Eric Flint's Jow Empire series that he started with Katie Wentworth and now continues with David Carrico. It's world-spanning science fiction as humans deal with their own conquest by an alien species and a looming enemy much worse and more deadly than the Jow conquerors is also fast approaching. Also out is Project Elf Home by Wen Spencer. This is the latest entry in Wen Spencer's science fiction fantasy hybrid series Elf Home, about a near-future Pittsburgh that is yanked into an alternate world where magic works and elves rule. This is a collection of several great Elf Home-related novellas by Spencer, plus lots of other fascinating looks into Elf Home culture and the characters. Span of Empire by Eric Flint and David Carrico and Project Elf Home by Wynne Spencer are now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Karen Offord and Rick Boatwright to the podcast. Hello. 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 Karen Offord stumbled onto... Karen, by the way, is a man. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Karen stumbled onto Eric Flint's 1632 universe in the beginning of 2003 when his father asked him to look up when 1633 would be released in paperback. He discovered Bain's Bar and has been active in the 1632 conferences ever since. He has had over 50 stories published in the Granville Gazette and has plans for many more. Although Dr. Gribbleflots is Rick Boatwright's creation, Karen lays claim to creating Dr. Phil, which is uh, also Dr. Gribbleflots. We'll get into that. Rick Boatwright is exactly the same age as Bill Gates, and Lightbill has been a software developer since the early 1970s, but in Rick's case, a developer for not-for-profit social service agencies. He's been a moderator of online forums as long as online forums have existed. Since 2001, he's been a writer and editor, as well as the head geek, which means a lot because Dr. Gribbleflats is also often called a geek, for Eric Flint's 1632 alternate history world. He also 
held the head geek title for Jim Bain's Universe magazine. He is the perpetrator of the annual Weird Tech Lectures associated with the 1632 Minicon. And we might mention what the 1632 Minicon is, and was the creator of Ring of Fire series, Dr. Grebelflots, the world's greatest alchemist. Now out at booksellers everywhere, 1636, The Chronicles of Dr. Grebelflots. Dr. Philip Theophrastus Grebelflots is uh, the world's greatest alchemist, at least according to Dr. Philip Theophrastus Grebelflots. Who is Grebelflots, guys, and, and how did he spring into being? Right. Well, I've been looking at the old posts I've got, and I've found Rick was talking about Dr. Gribbleflots in July 2004, and he laid down his thoughts on Dr. Gribbleflots in the 1632 Slush Conference. And from there... A couple of people responded, talking about how, you know, this should become a story, and I put my hand up. Which was a really good thing, because stories are not my strongest part. I'm, I'm mostly a nonfiction writer, and so without Karen jumping in, Dr. Phil would have stayed up. Very minor background character in the series. He probably would have died out. You talk a little oh, bit yes. about you talk about a little bit about this in the uh, the forward, the introductory essay to the um, to the book. Um, can you tell some of that story? I think it uh, involved Virginia and DeMarcy. It, it did. Um, we were in. We were in Mannington, West Virginia, which is the model town for Grantville in the 1632 series. And um, Virginia quite innocently puts out this question about what are all these southern women going to do when they run out of baking powder because their menfolk are going to want biscuits. And um, she looks over at um, myself and uh, Laura uh, another one of the 1632 uh, editorial board folks who has a science background. And, and she just kind of tilted her head over to the side. And, you know, I started stumbling around. You know, all of the scientists are busy. I don't know how they're going to make baking soda. And um, she just kept smiling. And Dr. Ripplefloss came out of that. It was, he was originally intended as Karen said, to be a character that would just die out, disappear, he was there to solve the baking soda problem. And so I wrote him up, and and Karen decided that there was a, a, a chance to actually do a story rather than kind of a joke. Yeah, well, um, the book starts out i mean it basically we follow gribble flots from the beginning of his his career as a young boy as an apprentice the book starts out with philip as a philip is his first name that's what he's usually known by in the stories um as a young boy just starting his education these stories of the young gribble flots i i found them really touching i i really liked them um can you give us a broad view of philip's path to becoming the great gribble flots the story picks up with Phil being dropped off at the door of the Fugger Bank in 
Augsburg, where he's going to be apprenticed to the assay office at the age of 12. And his mother is dropping him off because his stepfather has died and she's frantically looking for another husband and doesn't want a young boy hanging around. And so she found an apprenticeship for him and drops him off and disappears. Um, we find out later that she's really not a very pleasant person. Um, so Phil is there as the youngest apprentice at the, in the assay office of the bank. And um, Phil carries with him the knowledge that he is the great-grandson of the great 15th century medical philosopher, alchemist, Paracelsus, whose name was, oh, help me get this right, Karen, Philip Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. That's it. No yep. wonder he used the, uh, <laughs> the single Brazilian name. It's... Yeah, so, so um, he, and so uh, he had a son. Now, this was a real historic character, right? Oh, a real historic He's character. Famous, the, uh... the father of modern medicine. Yes. And um, so Phil's mother was the uh, granddaughter of, of Paracelsus's ch illegitimate child. He never married. And um, so, so his mother was, uh, family name was Bombast. So the joke when we first started defining Dr. Dribbleflux was that, you know, he was the great grandson of Paracelsus and a bombast on his mother's side. So, so he starts out and he begins to be noticed as a young apprentice because he's really good at this stuff. He's finicky. Yeah. Finicky. That's a good word. Pedantic. And how does that, that too. How does that manifest in his work? What I mean, what what did it mean to be an alchemist uh, apprentice in the six, early 1600s? Well, he's originally apprenticed as as I said at the bank in the assay office where they they get samples of coins and other things and have to determine what the gold and silver content is and stuff. And in order to do that, um, you can't just run down to your friendly neighborhood chemical supply house. If you want to do something with chemicals, you have to make them. And so one of the most common functions that um, anyone doing chemistry work of any kind in the period has to do is to make the core acids that everything in chemistry derives from. So sulfuric acid and nitric acid, just something that has to be produced because you can't buy it. And um, that's Philip's first adventure. Within his first week there, um, he is present for an industrial accident where someone isn't paying attention and they're making sulfuric acid and the vessel explodes, um, killing the inattentive person and causing all sorts of other things. 
And oh. his quick thinking saves saves the guy, and and sort of brings him to the attention of the of the master, and he moves on to university, right? And unfortunately, his mentors keep dying. Yep. Phil's life is is um, challenged. His mentors keep dying. He has trouble finding regular employment. Now, he wants to follow in his great-grandfather's footsteps. He wants to be a physician, wants to be a doctor. But um, he's poor. He's, you know, and his, as you said, his mentors keep dying on him. And so he leads a peripatetic life. He wanders all over Europe in the course of his first few decades. But he's well aware. It's sort of, I mean, he's, he's, kind of pretentious in later life he's uh he's a bit of a of a um even a, a braggart but he he can back it up right he's he knows he, he he's, knows he's good yeah and, and, he, and yeah, he, he knows he's good go ahead Karen. he knows he's good and he's well if we look at the he attended uh Padua university and he had one of his mentors was one of the greatest teachers ever. Unfortunately, the, um, the man dies on him. Um, so he's had some of the best training. He comes into Jena, and the people haven't had his advantages. They've been learning from inferior teachers. And um, Can you tell us about the... Um Anatomy lesson in Padua. That was one of my favorite scenes of these these early stories. Which which scene? It's the one where the the uh, his the, the guy's amputating the dog's leg. Ah, uh, that one. Ah, uh, uh, that yeah. That's just there's more than one anatomy lesson. So. <laughs> he's a student watching this, this. Well, he's not so much a student. He's an observer. A lot of the anatomy lessons weren't just for university students and doctors. It was for anybody who wanted to attend. Dr. Phil, as I call him, is he's done several years as a military surgeon. So he's coming in and he's trying to catch up, see what he's missed, see the latest developments in medical science. So he's attending this uh, seminar if you want to call it that, in which this person is talking about, you know, how he thinks an amputation should be done. And Philip is not impressed. Having done a number of them himself. Yeah, yeah he's done the real thing on living humans. So, But you don't want to be unimpressed with a pretentious professor who, who follows Galen and... <laughs> <laughs> and knows he's right about everything because it's in a book. Well, they well, all think they're right. And Philip then steps in, you know, and says, you know, what that's not right. And as Karen said, he's done amputations. He's worked as a military surgeon. And so, you know, this guy's demonstrating an amputation on a dog. And, and he goes, well, that's not how it's, you know, that's not the right way. And, this pretentious um, um, doctor, he, the demonstrator, says, well, do you think you could do it better? And Phil goes, 
well, yeah, and steps up and takes over the lecture, which is not a really great way to make powerful friends. Friends and influence people. Know. So, yes. once so, again, he's, he's had on his ass. He's making friends yep. and influencing people the wrong way. <laughs> yep. Tell us a little bit about his unfortunate experience in Hull also, which is another favorite scene, the, um, the pig heart. Uh, uh, yes. Well, Philip, uh, Dr. Nibblesluck, a lot of, the first part of the book takes us up to, to the ring of fire, and we're filling in his childhood and adolescence and yeah. young adulthood. This all yeah. happens before um, the uh, Grantville shows up. Exactly. Yes. And so, so there's two parts to the period there in whole. One is that it's a fun, you know, it's, it's well, fun for us, not so fun for Phil, um, episode for the reader. And the second thing is we really care somehow had to explain how he became so fluent in English. And so it turns out that he was uh, hired to do, you know, uh, uh, heat doctor work, um, healing work in Hull, which is a coastal town in England. And um, he had been reading about circulation of the blood. And so he was cutting up a pig, a living pig, and checking the circulate, how the blood circulates and what the heart does. And someone saw him and thought that he was practicing witchcraft. Yeah. And he... He stands in front of the getting window. getting run out of the, town on a rail. Yeah. He stands in front of the window by accident with a still beating heart. Of the hey, exactly. He needs the light. Yeah. Yet another example, though, of his being focused on what he's doing and on his technique and his experience, lab experience and that sort of thing, and really having no concept at all of his place in the cult in society around him. But he is, he is, I mean, he's good at delivering, he's a good teacher um, in that he's practiced by uh, reading Don Quixote before with kids. Maybe is it that he works best when he's talking to children? He works best when he's in charge, I think. And people are listening to him because he's good. When other people think that better, he has problems. Here's something that made him good. All right, his great discovery made. I think it was before the Ring of Fire. Is how to make aspirin from willow bark. How do how do you make aspirin from willow bark? Um, okay, he's not actually making aspirin pre Ring of Fire. He is making a pill based on the extract of willow bark. So salicylic the, acid. Yeah, but it's not yeah. the fully processed stuff that we get these days. It's right, because he, he isn't adding the, the acetyl group. There's, so it's, willow bark tea has been, you know, a pain reliever, inflammation reliever since forever. But he figured out how to make a pill, which is pretty much making willow bark tea and drying it out, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, so he's, he's two-thirds of the way along towards aspirin. He's, he's on the way, and then he meets the uptimers at Grantville. 
Um, and the substance that brought them together was called Sal Air Fixus by Gribble Floods. And uh, this yep. goes back to the Virginia DeMarcy's. What, what was that? How did that baking, happen? Baking soda. Baking powder, classic baking powder, single-acting baking powder is two parts. It's baking soda and then a dry substance which becomes an acid when it's wetted. Um, um, cream of tartar is what we call it these days, tartaric acid, which is a crystal that forms on the inside of wine barrels and um, just all by itself, just shows up. So, so he um, made the baking soda part of that, and then that it lets them then have, you know, make their biscuits. But, but, but everybody's done the experiment with baking soda, and you pour vinegar on it, and it bubbles up, and you know, it's just the fifth grade science fair volcano. And um, so the the Baking soda makes the bubbles for leavening cakes and breads and things like that. And so um, so they needed somebody to make the baking soda because it's not something that forms naturally. And so they got a, what they call a cheat sheet. They got a recipe for making baking soda from the chemistry people in Grantville and went looking for someone who had enough lab technique and consistency and reliability to, to do it and not end up poisoning everyone. Philip Gribble Flats is in, is it Jenna, uh, a nearby town? Yeah. Yes, which, which, which Virginia would be very upset with me if I didn't tell you that it's Jena, not Jenna. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Jena. 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 Yeah. Yana. So, Yana. So, so tell us uh, tell us a little bit about the uptimers, um, the Kubiaks. Um, what's their background? Well, they don't initially want to go into business making soda, baking soda. They just want some for biscuits, right? Yeah, right. They just, baking powder. Sorry. Yeah, they want they want to make biscuits. That needs baking soda or baking powder. So they find originally they just want to find somebody who can make it, which introduces them to Doctor Phil. And the somebody... Kubiaks are deeply Karen's characters. He had already created them when we when he when Doctor Phil's story started. Well, tell us a little bit about who they are, Karen, if you will. Right. Well, <clears throat> it's it's a local family, so you know it goes back several generations. They own the area on the the run, Mahan Run, which was originally the family farm, and it's been split up. But most of the family still lives there in that area, and you know they get together a lot. They have their Sunday after church get-togethers, and that's when we have the uh, the scene where you know they realise that they need more baking powder. Tracy is um, Tracy Kubrick is a foreigner. She's from Seattle, so she's got different attitudes to business. 
whereas her husband is a local, most of the others are locals, they're more family orientated than Tracy's family, and they've just taken in Tracy. So she wants to help people, she wants to help the family. And from there, she sees an opportunity and she suggests that the family invests in Dr. Phil. And she doesn't stand on, um, she doesn't really care whether he's a real doctor or not. It's more of the results that matter. It's, it's this sort of American attitude that really allows Gribble Flutch to come into his own, or the attitude of the modern age, at least. Yeah, they're not so fussed about, you know, titles and professional titles. So they wanted somebody who could make baking soda, baking powder. They found someone. That's all that mattered. And so they were looking for a technician, and they happened across a really excellent technician. And um, if you think about baking soda in your home or any place else, it's, it's one of those widely used chemicals that everybody has. You know, everything from toothbrushing to deodorizing the fridge, you know, we use baking soda for a zillion things. And so it turns out that it's not just, you know, a food stuff and um, quickly becomes a valuable product. So they want Gribble Flats to scale up. How does he do that? <laughs> Tried old method uh, of add people. Exactly. It's not exactly yep. a Henry want... Ford plant, but no, but it's the classic seventeenth century technique for making more of anything. Add people. Now, if you want to make if you've got someone making glasses and you want to make you know, um, drinking glasses and you want to make more drinking glasses, add another worker and then add another one and, you know, throw enough people at it. So Phil ends up with a lot of workers who he calls laborants and laborants. And because he's had this long series of experiences of working you know, for other people, he doesn't mistreat his employees. He's very careful to to um, treat his employees very well, and they become very loyal. He's using the Fuga model because, um, I mean, they looked after their employees. So that's another way where, why he's got this attitude. He was looked after at the beginning, it did him good, so he wants to continue that experience for anybody he he employs. And he does bring up um, several of his apprentices to uh, to higher positions. Um, yeah, well, he's, he starts allocating. He he needs somebody to do something. Well, he can't do it himself, so he trains up somebody to do it. Particularly at one point to get the ammonia out of urine. Yep, that one. Yep. <laughs> the, the, and Karen said something very important, which is he was trained in the Fugger model because that was his apprenticeship at the Fugger Bank. And this is a very 
This is an example of 1632 being so carefully based on the real world. The, the Fugers were the richest family in the world at, you know, in the, at the time. And, and they created, um, institutions. They created, for example, um, a charitable housing project that's still operating that was started in the 1580s, I think. And it's still there and still being operated on the same basis by the same foundation. And, um, they were taking care not just of their workers, but of the people in their town. You know, um, so he, so that's the the it's part of the justification for his attitude. What is the method? Absolutely. It's caring for your employees. Um, kind of a good apprenticeship model instead of the evil master. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you make sure they get fed properly. You make sure they get good bedding, good clothing. It's <clears throat> If you look at the first industrial revolution in England, you look at the housing and, you know, the f people were housed in a house. You come on to the second industrial revolution and the people are living in those same houses, but it's one family per room. So the Fuga model is the original, you know, a house for a family. So tell, maybe now is a good time to ask you guys um, how you do your research. How do you? It can be very complicated. It can also be very simple. It depends on what we're trying to research. But, but we've been working in the 1632 community for so long that we've read... I never oh, intended to become someone who um, who knew 17th century European history at all well, but poof, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> and with the 1632 universe, one you know we have the two rules. Um, one rule is um, that Grantville isn't Mannington, West Virginia, but it comes very close. You know, it's based on Mannington, West Virginia, which prevents us from magically creating things that we didn't have in, you know, you, there was no Walmart. There, yeah. And then the other rule was that history went exactly the way it really went, right up to Grantville showing up. So now that's a restriction, but it also gives you a basis. So... We have a. How do we invent things? Um, sometimes I look at, I get an idea, and I pass it past Rick, and he he tells me whether he thinks it'll work or not. And from there, I can do some extra research. You know, the internet is great. Internet is wonderful. A lot of the the first step is having an idea. This is, uh, I mean, this is a prime example of, of sort of this amazing uh, community that Eric has created, right? I, I don't you know, know of anything like it in uh, in in genre, for sure. Um, as of last week, 159 people have been paid for writing stories in the 1632 universe. I, I don't know of anything that comes close to that. 
and it, it's not just the people that write, it's the people on the conferences that contribute something that they know. So, you know, we've had doctors, we've had geologists and um, engineers, chemists. You know, there are a lot of people that know a little bit about their subject and they put that forward as something, you know, an idea. And, you know, if you want to know something, you post your question to the 1632 Tech Conference and there's a good chance somebody will have an idea of you know, how to answer your question. That's what gave us the, the head, what we call the head process, which gave us the uh, potassium, potassium chlorate, which gave us the Dr. Gribbleflotz's um, fuel tablets. And many times we've, we've just been hand, we've had someone come into the, into the forums and say, well, why don't you do this? And we'll say, well, because they can't, because blah, blah, blah. And the person will go, oh, no, all you have to do is this other thing. And all of a sudden, you know, we've got stuff that we just didn't know. The, the community is incredible. And at the same time, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it, it's such a tightly bonded fan community that we that it it caused us to actually start starting in about 2003. We started having an annual the min, what we call the minicon, where each year we'll pick some science fiction convention somewhere and run a 1632 track at some convention this year at FinCon in Dallas in September. Where's the next year? Have you decided yet? Balticon. Oh, cool. In Baltimore. Excellent. Back to the story. Um, along comes Aspirin, which he was he was halfway there with. Um, yep. Little Blue Pills of Happiness. Uh, this is one of his... It, it's also an example of his, his flamboyance um, in naming things, and he makes sure that they're purple, right, or, or blue. Blue. Yes. Blue, which is, yeah. Which he doesn't realize is the color of other yes. <laughs> drugs. A certain unnamed drug, yes. Yeah, because, of course, you wouldn't want you – know, it's supposed to be a pain reliever. It's supposed to be soothing, and you wouldn't cool. want to make those pills white. That's a cold and off-putting color. He calls it salvin betula. The salt, the salt of the wine of the willow tree, because the way that you make aspirin is you take wintergreen oil that you extract by steaming from wintergreen plants or birch tree. Russian birch works very well, and so you get wintergreen oil and mix that react that with um, with um, acetic acid, which you get out of by distilling it from vinegar. And it's one of the very first um, experiments that an organic chemistry student will do in lab to make aspirin from acetic acid and um, wintergreen oil. And so he still ends up doing precisely that. I should mention that there is a wonderful essay by Rick on the uh, Bain website right now that is all about the science of, of Dr. Gribbleflots. And 
can check it out there. Or later, if you are listening to this later, it's going to be in the um, the uh, free nonfiction 2006 ebook that's available for free at at Bain eBooks. So the um, tell us some more about the. There's so much to. I mean, we could talk about the the fun science for a long time, um, and perhaps we will more. But tell us a little bit about the how uh, Philip. Gribbleflats develops after he's he's come in contact with these uptimers. How does it change his life? Mostly, it's he's suddenly independent of having to work for a living to support his research. So he can go off on a tangent if he wants to. He just has to make sure that everybody else is doing their job, and then he can get lost in whatever he's interested in. And he's interested in all sorts of things. He sees himself as an alchemist, not as a scientist. He's not an uptimer. He's not modern. And so when he views the world, he views it through the lens of his experience. And so his experience has alchemy and mysticism in it. And so when he encounters, um, when he encounters um, things like pyramid power and crystal healing and things like that in the library in Grantville, where there are books about those things. Now, those things are perfectly synchronous with his understanding of the world. They don't seem outlandish to him. Not at all. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why... The uptimers think of him as a quack and a fraud and a charlatan, but he's actually very competent as any other 17th century scientist, alchemist. It's, it's just that he's using the term alchemist to describe himself, and a lot of the uptimers look at alchemy and think of transmutating lead into gold, and they think he's a, you know, a fraud. But one of the things that he's he is continually looking for is this um, the the fluid of life, the, the revitalizing. Yeah, the quintessentia, the human humors. And it seems to be a motivating a motivating force that leads him to a lot of other things. He he never finds that um, Frankenstein material, right? Um, <laughs> maybe not Frankenstein, yeah. but maybe maybe. Um, Maybe the fountain of youth, maybe something else. But he's looking for for the something that can invigorate the human spirit. Again, perfectly reasonable from his theoretical framework. He's not modern. Seventeenth century geek that he is, he he gets pulled into um, into society. He gets pulled into a community. Um, he begins forming relationships with 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 these people. Could you tell us a little bit about the um, the development of his um, you know his, his outside of science life? Originally, well, that sort of married. thing. Yeah, yeah, he ends up married. Um, I'm not sure how the that daughter of a Lutheran pastor. <laughs> he quite literally runs into the woman he marries. Um, um, knocks her papers out of her hands and is struck dumb by her. Um, 
he's it's it's very much a classic geek story. Um, people have said it's too fast, but but it isn't. It's it's he was dumbfounded by it. The first time he looked up from from, from his research and saw something beautiful. He's truly a good guy, you know. And that concept that he's he takes his early training from the Fuggers and he um, uses it through the rest of his life. And he really and truly is a good guy. He's a very sympathetic character. As we, it, he's a person who's not worried about money, except when he doesn't have any. So he's currently sort of one of the richest people in the continent. But um, he's worried about who's going to pay for his experiments and can he get the Royal Academy to pay for things. So he's, he's not thinking about money. Right. He's always thinking about what's next. And so as a result, you know, he has this incredible amount of personal loyalty and it just seems like, you know, the money flows not because he's trying to build a giant company that makes money. He's trying to do things. And the money comes because he's good at that. Tell, tell me about some other things um, that, uh, you know, I, was, I want to ask you about the, the, um, the Rochelle salts, for instance. Why, what are they good for? Why is it so Where do they come from? Well, in our history, of course, they come from Rochelle, France, which is why they're called Rochelle salts. But um, Rochelle salts are a classic middle school science fair experiment. Um, and what they're good for is, and what they were actually used for for decades, is that they are a substance which responds to electric current and which generate electric current. So if you have a layer of Rochelle salts and you put electric current on them, they bend, or if you bend them, they make an electric charge. So they were used in phonograph cartridges. If you record players, um, the needle would vibrate a uh, a small piece of salt of the Rochelle salt that would then make the signal for the record player. Um, they are used even now and, and were traditionally used to make um, earphones because the electricity would cause the Rochelle salts to bend. And so as you put an electric signal on them, they bend back and forth and make sound. And so that's what they're used for. And um, they were the first, one of the first discovered substances that do that. And is this what crystal radios, the old um, science experiment, was based on? No, crystal radios work in a different way that you don't want me to try to explain. <laughs> but the right. crystal in crystal radios is what is traditionally galena, which is lead ore. You'd have a, a chunk of galena and then a, a very small wire or needle or something touching it, 
and that would be the crystal part of the crystal radio. But this, uh, the, the Rochelle salts are used to create the kind of headphones that are going to make it easier to hear a radio signal, for instance. Um, yes. Yes, because the other way to make headphones is to have hair thin or finer wire and make little teeny tiny coils and little drum heads that are going to stick in your ear. And, and uh, if you think about making earbuds by hand, it's incredibly difficult to physically do. But with the Rochelle salt, it's easy. So, as long as they don't get wet. Uh-huh. There's so much more to explore in this really fun volume. We, What are some of, if, maybe both of you, give me some of your favorite Gribble Flots concoctions or moments. What did I have the most fun with was the um, sex aids with the <laughs> nitrous oxide. The absolutely most memorable scene in the book, of course, is when Doc, is the experience of Dr. Cribble Fox and his wife and the exploding rubber pants. And the less said about that on a family-rated podcast, the better. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the whole sex aids thing with the nitrous oxide and the, the whipped cream and the... Um, the Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass creamed Madonna album cover, and it's 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 it was best. fun. <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, this the sex aid thing is kind of a a theme that starts early in the book because he, he we we learn about it through the book um, the the dangers of the the sex aid they did use, um, which was Spanish Fly. Uh, yeah, which is poison, right? It's a blistering yeah. agent. He's able to actually. Um, well, he, he doesn't save anyone from it, but he solves a mystery as a result yeah. earlier in the book. So, what what about yeah. you, Rick? What's your uh... my favorite? Well, it again the the nitrous oxide stuff is is an awful fun thing. But my my current favorite though is the is the last thing we came up with, which was the um, it's always been the case that we've had trouble with there are you can't make transistors in the seventeenth century and vacuum tubes are hard, but very, very late, um, less than about a year ago. Just as we, as Karen was reaching the last stories in the book, we came up, we, we encountered a technology that we've never seen before, the flame diode and flame triode. And so we have Dr. Phil and the flaming electronics. And um, those stories probably are my current favorite and are going to be so much fun to try to demonstrate in the Weird Tech Lecture this year. <laughs> I want to see the video if you do that. I want the radio. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, that yeah, those are that is cool stuff. Um, so what what are you uh, what are y'all working on now? Will we see more Philip Gribble plots? 
I I just returned to Karen this afternoon. Karen, I promised the review of the newest, the next Dr. Gribbleflot story, um, which is going to feature Dr. Phil and the Flaming Electronics of some sort. The book is 1636, The Chronicles of Dr. Gribbleflots. It's now available at booksellers everywhere. Karen and Rick, thank you so much for being with us. Yep. Well, thank you're you welcome. for having us. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy? The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the Rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Coursera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 7 Bergen and Associate Shipyard Cinnabar. Hey, Six, called Sun from the hallway. This one says Corey sent her. I've never seen her before, though. Daniel had been vaguely aware of the elevator stopping on the other side of the closed office door, but he was lost in details of the Pantelarian Navy since independence on the command console. Adele had supplied up-to-date information. Daniel didn't know whether the data came from Navy House files or somewhere else, and he wasn't going to ask. Send her in, Daniel called as he rose from the console seat. It was time for a break and a stretch anyway. Corey was negotiating for rations for the voyage, but that shouldn't have required Daniel's input until there was a contract to sign. The young woman who entered wore RCN utilities without insignia. She was as much a stranger to Daniel as she had been to Sun, who was acting as doorman because he had both the rank and the intelligence for the job. She braced to attention and saluted. Sir, she said, I'm Lucinda Hale, and Lieutenant Corey didn't direct me to apply, he just said that there might be a crew slot open. Hale's salute was clumsy, although she had obviously tried hard. Perversely, that made a better impression on Daniel than drill team execution would have. He'd always been terrible at drill and ceremony himself. Close the door and sit down, Hale, he said. Moments before, he'd expected that the visitor would be leaving as quickly as she had arrived, but he was intrigued with her comment about Corey, and Daniel needed a break. And anyway, she was an attractive young woman. Now explain what you mean about Corey. Sir, Lieutenant Corey told me that the Kaisha was already oversupplied with officers, but that you might have a crew position open. Hale said. She reached forward, holding a data chip. This is my file, sir. Corey and I were in the same class of the academy, but I don't mean we were close. We knew one another. Daniel took the chip, but he was frowning and didn't insert it into the console yet. You heard that Kaisha was fitting out and contacted Corey? He asked. No, sir, she said. Corey called me out of the blue. I'd never heard of the Kaisha, and I don't think I've seen Corey twice since we graduated. 
I see, said Daniel, which he certainly did not. Well, he could check with Corey later if he needed to. He called up the chip's data and added, You've passed your lieutenant's boards. Yes, sir, Hale said. But there isn't a chance in hell of me ever being promoted so long as we're at peace. I don't have any interest. And not much money. Though enough that I'm not starving, strictly speaking, while I'm on half pay. I noticed your utilities were new, Daniel said, without emphasis as he continued to scan the data. This console appeared to have access to all the records in Navy House. Mon might not know that, but Daniel was sure that Adele did. Yes, sir, Hale said. She screwed her face up over a thought, then blurted, Sir, I didn't know what to wear. There wasn't time to get a set of whites tailored, and anyway, that'd have been wrong. You want spacers, not a clothes horse. I want to make the RCN a career, and I'd rather be a common spacer under you than third mate on the freighter mare's nest. Daniel laughed. The sort of ship you're talking about doesn't have a third mate, he said, or a second mate generally. But if you went far enough out in the sticks, you could get a master's papers on the basis of your record here. The chip Hale had given him was a direct copy of the Navy House original, with no embellishments or omissions. That was a mark in the woman's favor, regardless of whether it meant she was honest, or that she was too smart to risk getting caught while improving what was already a respectable record. Sir, I've been hanging on, hoping that a midshipman's slot will open up, Hale said. I had good marks at the academy, and my service record is good too. There's nothing to boast about in two years as a midshipman on a destroyer that never saw action, but there's no black marks either. I thought I might have a leg up on a new graduate when they were making up the roster on a battleship coming out of ordinary. Daniel looked at her and pursed his lips. We are going out to the back of beyond, he said. It won't be a pleasure cruise. Though the crew will probably eat better than anybody on an ordinary tramp out there does, even the captain. He grinned, then sobered again. Did Corey say why he called you? Sir, I couldn't have been more surprised to hear from my mother, Hale said, shaking her head in puzzlement. And she's been dead three years. I thought of calling him back, but I didn't have much time as it was if I was going to buy a set of utilities. She pinched the loose fabric of her sleeve and get up to speed on a Lewiston Mark 17, which is what the sailing registry says the Kaisha has for a fusion bottle. Good judgment, Daniel said mildly. He highlighted an item on Hale's service record. You're on the small bore team, he said. Yes, sir, Hale said, visibly brightening. I was academy champion my last three years, and I was runner-up to Cadet Dorst when I was first year, but I won't pretend I'd ever have beaten him if he hadn't graduated. She frowned. You don't suppose that was why Corey called me, do you? She said. He was second team football, I think. But I wouldn't have bet he even knew I shot small bore. Daniel was thinking. As often, the silence drew Hale to speak further, saying, I wasn't interested in football, and I certainly wasn't any good. But I'll venture to shoot with anybody you want to name. Will you indeed? Daniel said mildly. He wondered what son would say to that. Probably something more polite than Hogg's response to the same statement. He looked Hale over again. Footer is good training for the rigging, he said. But I found myself in places where having people who knew how to use stocked impellers has been handy. There was a booklet of notepaper in the console's top tray. Daniel pulled off a sheet and wrote on it with his stylus. Take this to Wochens, he said, handing the note to Hale. She's up on the Kaisha down there in the pool. 
Tell her to run you up and down the rigging enough to make up her mind. If she's satisfied, she'll assign you to a watch. Hale hopped to her feet. Thank you, sir, she said, attempting to salute again. She forgot that she had the note in her right hand and made an even worse hash of it than she had before. The midshipman, soon to be common spacer if she was as fit as she seemed, bent to pick up the note she'd dropped. We don't salute much on ships, I command, Daniel said. Which is as much for my benefit as it is for the sort of spacer I like to be with in hard places. Hale went out laughing. She was in so much of a hurry that she went down the stairs instead of waiting for the elevator to return. Daniel shook his head in wonder. It was remarkable that he was finding so many people who were enthusiastic about crewing a scruffy tramp freighter into a war on a mudball planet. Of course, Captain Daniel Leary was pretty enthusiastic himself. Xenos on Cinnabar. There's somebody waiting at the stop, said Tovera as the monorail rocked, slowing. She opened her attache case. That's scarcely surprising at a tram stop, Adele said. But she slid her data unit away and stood beside Tovera at the car's front window. Tovera's instincts were very good, in a manner of speaking. Adele supposed she read body language, and the more accurately because she had no emotions herself. The plastic windshield had been clear when installed, but it now was covered with scratches, road film, and bug spatters. The trams rarely got to speeds which would crush an exoskeleton, but they were even more rarely cleaned. All Adele could see through it was a blurred figure getting up from the bench, probably a man of middle height, wearing loose garments. Tovera closed the attaché case which held her submachine gun. It's Corey, she said. How can you tell? What is Corey doing here? Has something happened to Daniel? The car opened. Adele stepped out behind Tovera and said, Corey, why are you here? Adele thought, I shouldn't snap at him because I'm worried about Daniel. If her abrupt greeting bothered Corey, he gave no sign of it. Ma'am, I was just waiting for you, he said. I thought I'd sit here because it's a nice afternoon. And we didn't have houses like this on Florentine, where I come from, you know. He gestured with his open left hand, palm up. The tram stop was at the head of the narrow cul-de-sac. At the bottom was Chatsworth Minor, four stories of brick above a stone basement. With stone tie courses and wrought iron balcony railings, the three houses on either side of the cul-de-sac were of similar age and style. After 400 years, there aren't many left in Zenos either, I suppose, Adele said. Whatever Corey had to tell her can't have involved a serious danger, or he wouldn't be so relaxed. The neighborhood didn't become run down, and the families here aren't the sort which prefer change over stability. Corey had a quiet smile and rarely seemed to be disturbed by anything. He was so easygoing that Adele had initially thought that he was simple-minded, but the young midshipman had taken to the Como suite like no one Adele had met before or since. Everything else, from astrogation to ship handling, had proceeded from the confidence Corey gained from that first success under signals officer Adele Mundy. Adele glanced at the sky. The sun was below the tall houses, though it was still half an hour short of true sunset. Would you care to come in for dinner, Corey? Adele said. She didn't imagine the cook would have difficulty feeding a guest. Indeed, the fellow would probably appreciate a healthy appetite. Adele ate very little, and Daniel, when he ate at the townhouse, wasn't particularly interested in food either. Oh no, ma'am, Corey said in surprise. 
I just thought I'd tell you that I dropped a word to Lucinda Hale like you wanted. I'm pretty sure she'll be applying as common spacer. She seemed pretty excited at the chance, in fact. Adele looked at him without expression. She thought, I didn't tell you to do anything of the sort, which was technically true, but it was what Adele had hoped would happen when she asked Corey about his classmate. I didn't know how much of a secret it was, Corey said, smiling cheerfully. So I thought I'd come by instead of calling, you know? And I didn't use your name to hail. She may figure it out on her own, but it won't have come through me. Your caution does you credit, Corey, Adele said, though it was probably unnecessary in this case. Thank you. My pleasure, ma'am, Corey said. I'll let you get off to your evening now. He pressed the tram call plate, then turned to face Adele again. Hale was always nice to me, you know. At the academy, I mean. She'd smile or say hi, and it doesn't sound like much, but there were days that it really helped. I imagine it did, Adele said. But she spoke so quietly that Corey probably didn't hear the words over the squeal of a tram car breaking to stop. She walked toward the house with Tovera behind her. She remembered the cul-de-sac filled with popular party supporters, and her father addressing them from the third-story balcony the night he had been elected tribune. The cheers were still loud in Adele's memory. And midshipman Lucinda Hale's smile was bright in Corey's memory. The past wasn't dead, so long as there was someone who remembered it. The same could be said of the scores of men and women whom Adele had glimpsed only briefly over her gun sight as her finger took up the pressure on her trigger. For they visited her in the dark hours before dawn, and she knew they would be with her until she too died. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jetkowitz. And a very large saltpeter sandwich, chased by a double shot of nitroglycerin aged backward through time for a tawny and mellow swallow. Just don't jump up and down too much after you've guzzled it. Plus, thanks and gratitude to Karen Offord and Rick Boatwright, authors of 1636 The Chronicles of Dr. Gribbleflots. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. Happy Labor Day, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>